Hello, and welcome to this episode of TASME Time, Talks in Medical Education. Hi, I'm Oliver. I'm an IMT based in London and one of the co-hosts of TASME Time. And I'm Rob, a GP trainee based in Lincolnshire and one of the other co-hosts of TASME Time. How's your week going, Rob? Uh, it's been a it's been a long week. Um, it's I'm really quite happy that this this is my Friday night. It's Thursday night, um, but I, I'm off work tomorrow, and I am very much ready for that. If I'm honest, um, it's been a long week. What about you? Uh, yeah, equally, I think uh, we've both got exams at the moment, and so it's been a stressful week. But I'm glad that uh, I'm looking forward to this evening's conversation. It's going to be a good one. Yeah, no, me too. And uh, I think we've managed to get a really great guest for this episode. Yeah, so today we are delighted to be joined by Professor Judy McKim, who is Professor of Medical Education at the University of Chester and Emeritus Professor of Medical Education at the Swansea University Medical School. So, um... What would be really nice as a sort of starting point then would be if you could tell us a little bit about your career to date, if that's all right. Yep, that's fine. So I'm Judy McKim. I'm Professor of Medical Education at Chester University at the moment and um, Emeritus Professor of Medical Education at Swansea. So my background is a nurse by background. I trained as an orthopaedic and then a general nurse. And then I went into education. Um, I worked in further education for seven years. Then I went down to Charing Cross and Westminster Medical School and was the curriculum facilitator for the new medical programme. And Charing Cross later merged into Imperial College. So I was director of undergraduate medicine at Imperial for um, about five years. I worked for 11 years at Imperial in total, then did a bit of work in setting up a postgraduate medical school, Went to New Zealand for four years and was a, a pro dean of a, a large faculty there, health professions education. Then I came back to the UK to Swansea and I was dean of medical education for four years. And then I was director of strategic educational development for four years, eight years yeah, in total. Um, and then I, I left Swansea 2020 did a little bit of work with Bangor, setting up the new medical school in North Wales. And then now I'm working with Chester, setting up their new medical school. Um, I've also run, set up and run probably about 14 master's programmes in MedEd and in leadership. And I'm director of international collaborations for Amy. And I'm director of the leadership development uh, courses for Amy and for ASME. Okay, I think that's probably most of it. <laughs> I think that's that's such an amazing um, journey, and so many quite. Um, it's really interesting to talk to someone who's who's had that role at sort of setting things up because we don't often speak to people that have had that opportunity and to do it again and again and again. And I'm sure there's there'll be things that maybe come out as we talk this evening about some of that experience, which I think will be really interesting for our listeners, and um, particularly sort of as this. Um, as is in the news, the sort of desire of um, the Labour Party to think about increasing medical student numbers further, because I think if that does happen, there's likely to be um, even more new medical schools popping up over the next five or ten years. Um, So I think it's probably worth us jumping straight in with the topic then. And and our first question, which I I suppose is probably um, the most important question in some ways, is why should doctors have leadership skills? Why are leadership skills important for, for doctors and for all healthcare professionals to, to a large extent as well? I think there's a few things there. The first thing is that as clinicians, um, we have a high status in society. And so we have a sort of societal leadership role, I think. In, and for me, that side of it has been really aware of the big issues of the day and where we fit in, climate, the climate emergency, uh, inequalities, you know, all those sort of things, deprivation, just making sure that we're, that we're cognizant of that because we have a good voice. So I think that's one side of it. Um, the next is, of course, in clinical situations, um, doctors are typically expected to lead, be that an emergency situation or the long-term care of a patient. So we have to develop those leadership skills. 
Um, and then, of course, there are managerial situations that we all have to manage. We have to manage ourselves, our own time. We have to work in teams. We have to uh, you have to plan rotors and all that sort of thing. You know, so there's a lot of managerial things. We have to attend meetings. We have to chair meetings. So there are all sorts of leadership activities that doctors and other health professionals have to learn. So they're the activities. That's the doing bit of leadership. The being bit of leadership is about being yourself, authentic and leading with credibility and ethically and with a with a good voice. And that's the bit that I like developing with people. I'm psychotherapy trained as well as a nurse. Forgot that bit. And um, and so I'm really, really interested in how people learn to learn to develop a leadership identity and learn to actually find their voice and their credibility as a leader. So I think that's what it is. The other thing I should say that for me, leadership is, and if you've read my stuff, you will know this, three things. It's leadership with the vision and the direction and that, that sort of direction of travel and motivation. It's management, making sure things work efficiently and effectively. And it's followership, knowing when you have to follow someone else and when when to step up, when to step back. So I think for me, leadership are those three things. We call it the leadership triad. And, you know, always, I often just reflect on a day-to-day basis how much you do each of those things just in a, a meeting or in a podcast like this. You know, I said to you, I'll take your lead. Oh, that means I'm following you, you know. So we do it all the time, I think. And if we can get that into our way of being, that's really helpful, I think. Thank you. And I think we, you alluded to it, but the sort of the role of a leader as a a clinician especially changes, particularly sort of in the sort of clinical environment. I think uh, you graduate medical school and you're suddenly a um, an F1 and you can be put in a situation when you're, you're, you're leading a situation it could be an emergency it could be something else and you're suddenly put in this position having I think uh you're suddenly flung into the deep end and it's how do we prepare people for that and we've had an episode on simulation talking about sort of the preparedness for the acute setting and the and how do you deal with an an emergency and the leadership skills within that but I think that's only a, a small subset of what we do day to day. And how do we teach those skills for uh, more junior trainees or junior clinicians? How do we teach those skills to for them to develop them as it, as their career starts? Well, I, I think it starts in medical school or your you know your undergraduate program if you if you're non medicine. So it starts there, doesn't it? So there are communication skills we need to learn to communicate effectively. We need to learn emotional intelligence so that we know what impact we're having on people by our actions or non actions or what we say or what we do. Yeah, there are team working and leadership skills that we can learn. We can learn to be better team members. You know, more either, for example, if you think about patient safety, you know, when do you speak up? When do you challenge? When don't you? Uh, If you think about, you know, the patient safety side of things, which we teach in medical school, Um, there are self-leadership things, time management, prioritisation, knowing when to ask for help, having self-insight, all the things that fit under the professionalism or the generic professional capabilities. A lot of those are dovetailed in with leadership. You know, it's about leading yourself, but it's also about providing leadership or followership or management for others as well. So I think that there, for me, if you if you look at the professionalism curriculum, it's all in there, really. uh, Certainly for outcomes for graduate, it is, and and as I say, the generic professional capabilities for us in postgrad. So I think a lot of it sits there. Um, Leadership isn't necessarily a special thing, but it's something that. You have to learn when leadership is required and then you have to learn how to be able to provide that leadership. And it can be what we call little L leadership. If you're a medical student or an F1, it's not going to be huge. You're not going to be managing a hospital. You're not a chief exec, but you are leading yourself. You're leading. You might be prioritising your patients, deciding, 
you know, what care to provide or who to talk to or who to ask for help or who to roll in, pull into the team, you know, what which of the health professionals need to have input into those decisions. So for me, it's all that sort of thing that, that we do teach medical students. We don't always frame it as leadership. And I'm not sure we actually have to necessarily, as long as we make sure those things are included. So the work we did with the Faculty of Medical Leadership and Management, looking at there's a, an indicative undergraduate curriculum for leadership and management that we pulled together a group of us. Um, and that, you know, that's how we thought of that about that. We thought about the different domains and then how, how could we put that in the medical curriculum? And it's been rolled out to other health professions curricula as well through the Health Professions Council and the Nursing and Midwifery Council. So there's a lot of work goes on, you know, around that leadership piece. I think it's really interesting you say that because actually reflecting back so many of those things you've just talked about I think most of our listeners would be able to look back at their own training and go actually we did cover all of those things but I think you're right it's not always explicitly covered is it in that saying you're now going to learn to do some leadership and I think it's interesting because I do wonder if you had a lecture and said today's lecture is going to be about how to be a leader as a doctor whether that might actually be less effective than that approach of having it spaced through the curriculum in areas that I think students do see I think I think most people go communication skills that's important for my future mm. role for example mm. no you're right I think we can't we can't do a lecture how to be a leader can we that won't work let's face it it has to be continuous because it's about development it's about your professional development and also it's about you growing as and developing as a person as well as a professional so it's development of that identity to take leadership or to choose to step up you've got to have a confidence of self that you can do that and you can that you can do the thing you're meant to be doing but also that you can bring other people along with you if you need to or or, or you know manage yourself well in a situation so that's all you know part of our development as a as a, as a human but also as a professional and so we need good feedback I think we're very reluctant, not, I think, um, I think yourselves and, and your sort of generations are much happier to use the word leadership than your predecessors. And I think that's, we, we often think about the language of leadership. Let's use the L word. Let's just say it. Can you take a lead on this? Just really casually. It's not a big deal, but you get used to, oh, I'll, I'll lead on this project. I'll, oh, I'll, 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 I'll lead this conversation if you're using the l word gets it just being part and parcel of everyday life rather than being a special thing and that traditional idea of a leader you know the the big l leader ceo president obama you know that is one sort of a leadership but it's not the for the majority of us we're not obama or we're not you know a king or whatever we're not there we are leading in our own uh, on day-to-day basis. We're leading meetings. We follow. We do all this all the time, you know, having a conversation. I always say to people, if you think about how children learn to turn-take, you're learning to lead and follow. We don't label it that, but turn-taking is leadership and followership and managing, knowing when to stop and how to even construct a sentence. We do all these things naturally, but we don't always frame it as leadership. And sometimes that's helpful and sometimes it's not, just as you pointed out, I think, really. I think the, I, I think from watching our um, sort of, I work in hospital compared to Rob, who's in general practice. And I think, I think the, the obvious leaders change so frequently, like day to day, um, different consultant, a different registrar. That's that, but the role that they take on is so different for everything. It might suddenly they're the leader in, in an emergency setting, but then oh, now they're managing the team of juniors on on the ward, or it's and there's so many a- uh, aspects to it, um, and. I, I think as someone who's training in a few years will be a m- medical reg, well, hopefully, that that how do I prepare for all of those different aspects? Because I think we, we current training's good at preparing us for the acute settings. We can sim them. We can, um, we can learn the skills of sort of a, about a sort of, um, uh, 
the the communication skills to understand bring that team with you and the emotional intelligence to have that but i i don't think we're very good at um feeding back on it particularly in i think in hospitals or, or at, at the moment it's so stretched that actually the feedback you get on your co-working is so like meets expectations or no concern there's very little constructive and then suddenly bang you're the med reg holding the bleep and managing a team at night and leading that team and do you think there's things that that we can do as as trainees ourselves that are less reliant on other people for that feedback to develop what can we do i think so there's a really it's a really good book called thanks for the feedback um makes note on on the tablet um but it is a really good book and and the whole pre- sort of precept of the book is that we we need to learn to ask for feedback and then we thank somebody so actually learning i always call feedback as part of a professional conversation that it's actually how did i do did i do okay could i have done better what about when i did that you know so just learning one thing is just learning the technique of asking for feedback in a really everyday in the moment way okay or even a look can give you feedback. You know, a glance can actually tell you, and a nod will tell you you're on the right lines, just if you're in the middle of a, I don't know, procedure or something. You want that, don't you? So in terms of our leadership, I think we need to be able to ask for the ability to to to, to be in leadership roles. So, you know, for example, leading leading the leading the ward round or leading a couple of patients on a ward round, you know, leading those conversations, all these things about just stepping up a little bit, taking those what I what we call those little L leadership roles, um, you know, working with the reg to plan the rotor, different things. So you're learning, you really described some of the activities really well. So it's thinking about what activities do my seniors do? How could I practice doing that? little bits of it it doesn't have to be the whole thing okay i was reminded when i, I worked with the royal veterinary college on a, a couple of projects and they were designing all these sim sim uh apps and they said they talked about spaying a cat and they they, they put it all in bite-sized chunks and they said you don't do it from start to finish at first you do a bit you know and same with surgery or anything you bite break it up so just have a go even if it's one patient if you I always say to foundation doctors, you know, offer to lead a pa- one patient on the what you, you can lead one. You'd have to lead the whole ward round and manage the time and the input and the other health professionals, but start small. Similarly, the management activities, observe how people chair meetings. You might chair an item on a meeting. You might ask how the agenda has been put together so that you learn. We're not born learning how to set an agenda and chair a meeting, sadly gladly actually um but <laughs> imagine waking up um but i think you know we we need to practice those things and give and get feedback on that and know a lot of these what i call the activities are so learnable they're just learnable activities it's like you learn any of your clinic clinical skills but coupled with that is the being part so it's the way you do things not exactly what you do so you can learn the what you do but you need to learn the way of what you do. So if you watch somebody chair a meeting and another person and another, they'll all do it's like the gender might be exactly the same. The people around the table might be exactly the same, but the way they do it will be different. So you need to practice to find your way and that that's an effective way. So I think a lot of it is about observation. I, I say to my students, put your leadership antennae on, waft them around, observe when you're watching television, observe Politician, what what are they doing? What are they saying? How are they saying it? What decisions are they making? How are they communicating them? And then do that in the workplace. The, as soon as you start thinking about these things and observing it, you'll start actually it'll it'll come into your consciousness. I think that's what happens with leadership. It's like oh, goodness, yeah, they do it like that. Okay, why why did that work? How did that work? Why didn't it work? You know, so really start to just observe a little bit about how people. And again, it's mainly about effective communication and that emotional intelligence, isn't it? So and that was a bit of a long-winded answer to your question, but it is that being and doing. If you, I think that's a really good way of thinking about leadership. What activities do I need to be able to do to be a leader? Right? What do consultants do? What do regs do? What do GP partners? What do they do? And then what is it that I need to do and how am I going to do it? 
And that's where you, everybody's leadership style is slightly different. It remi- what you've just said really reminds me of whenever I'm asked to think of one of the best examples of leadership that I've ever seen, I always come back to the same example in my head. And it's a really old one now. It's I was a fourth year medical student and it was on Labour Ward um, and there was a call that um, a woman was coming and that she was about 32, 33 weeks um, pregnant and bleeding heavily. And the midwife, it was a night shift, the midwife in charge, um, just the way she took the call and how she turned around to what had been a quite a calm shift and it had been quite quiet and people had been busy enough in terms of not everyone had had a break yet, etc. But how she took that information, immediately sent two people to have a break before it came in and rearranged things. She made everyone a hot drink and toast before and used the fact that we knew that we had about a 30 minute window really effectively to get everyone ready for when this emergency came and i i always think it's really powerful because it what it was a really transforming moment for me in that it completely changed what i thought it was to be a leader from being someone who was stood there directing everyone but actually she identified what people needed in order to then be able to manage the emergency. And it wasn't about telling them what to do when the woman arrived. It was about that preparation and much more about preparing people in terms of making sure they'd had a break, not going, are you going to do role X? You're going to do role Y. And it was the first time I'd ever seen leadership like that. Mm -hmm. Um, And the fact that she, she immediately cracked on and and made everyone a hot drink and that that, rather than delegating that task, which she could have to someone more, in fact, she could have delegated it to me, but, Actually, it was really, for me, I will never forget that because everyone was behind her, partly because I'm sure she she was a very experienced midwife and I think she was well-respected anyway. But actually, I, I suspect that some of the reason that she was so well-respected is because she this is the way she is always and that she she knew how to get her team prepared for what was going to potentially be quite a difficult situation. And and uh, yeah, it's it's always stuck in my head in terms of it having that more emotional domain, I think. And it, I think I will, that's that's what I want to be as a leader. If I look back at, particularly in an emergency situation, and granted, as Oliver said, I'm as a GP trainee, I don't come across, thankfully, Touchwood, many emergency situations. But if I did, that's what I want to be like. Um, and I think it's, it's amazing, isn't it, how those one-off experiences um, can really shape then how we see things going forward. Mm, that's really I mean that's really interesting on a few levels isn't it first you know that it was a nurse-led midwife-led leadership role I suppose people like Yanni Gabriel or Paquita de Zulueta would call it caring or compassionate leadership that actually looking after your people and Michael West or Michael West's work um King's Fund work on compassionate leadership um there's a really nice phrase in that in in that and it's about helping people to do their best work and that resonates a bit like you it that that phrase i always try and keep it in my mind every day how can i help people do their best work yeah and so that's why i said to you at the beginning you lead i'll follow because this is these are your, this is your party not my party i'm a guest so you lead so that we all do our best work but I have prepared, you know, I didn't not read the questions and things, but I didn't know how the conversation would go, really. Look, we don't know, do we? But yet we if we can all do our best work, that is so good. So I would say to people, really think about that. How can you help people do the, do their best work and how can you help yourself to do yours? And what do you need from other people? And sometimes that is asking for things you know like help or whatever but it's a nice example of that isn't it as instead of going through as you say sticking labels on people's fronts you're the anaesthetist you're this you're that actually it's making sure people are physically and mentally prepared for what's coming in and of course people going on breaks they have conversations people are preparing themselves aren't they for that and I'm sure at the side of it everybody was prepared clinically and the room was ready and everything and all the equipment was right. So it wasn't that that was forgotten, but it was about making sure the people were, were in a state of readiness to welcome that person and be calm and, you know, reassure the woman and her partner that things were in hand and, you know, that she was safe 
that it's all about so you know you've got to think i think for in terms of patients we have to it's that physician heal thyself thing is going back way back it's about if we're if we're good we can actually do much better work with our patients and we can be we can be there for patients where if we haven't had a break if you just think about you know on the wards and things at the moment or clinics you know if, if you haven't had a break and you haven't had enough to drink how can you do your best work you're cognitively impaired if you're dehydrated and you've got a full bladder we know that well give people a break to empty their bladders and have a drink you know to me because how can people do their best work and that whole thing about expecting people just to keep on and soldier on is not healthy it's not healthy because you're not looking after your people and actually for yourself if you don't take any breaks or you lead and role model that people aren't going to feel comfortable to even ask for a break or even be seen having a sip of water or whatever. So I think we have to really role model the leadership like that, that's caring, that's compassionate. It doesn't mean it's not tough. It doesn't mean we don't get the job done. It doesn't mean we don't do a really good, you know, hard work. And it doesn't mean that we might not stay late after hours or whatever, or come in early or whatever. It doesn't mean that. What it means is you feel looked after and you feel that you are capable of doing your best work. You know, that's so important, isn't it? We can easily undermine, leaders can easily undermine people. You know, especially if you're in a leadership role or position, you've got so much power and you've got to be so careful not to abuse that power. Um, I think, you know, I've been aware of it. I've, you know, we all make mistakes and I, I can reflect back on things and I've just thought oh, I didn't pay enough attention to that person or I wasn't quite in the moment with that person. I was a bit dismissive because I was busy, you know, all the reasons. But actually, you know, if we can just try and do our, and do our best, and uh, we can be transparent about it. We can say, you know, just... I am super busy. I'm trying to do my best work. Can I give you five minutes today and you'd have ten tomorrow? You know, whatever it is, you know, at least you've acknowledged people. And and I always try to, um, you know, to be quite responsive to people and to, to care for, you know, to look after them if I can, um, as, my, as best I can. But, you know, you don't always get it right. We're, we're human. We're all fallible. So, you know, nobody's perfect. <laughs> I think that self insight's so important, though, isn't it? That is that's the fundamental thing. It's the minute we accept that we're not perfect, but at the same time can own and acknowledge our imperfections and reflect on it and work out where we can do things better. Then, what else? That 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 surely has to be a core part of of leadership. Yeah, yeah, that's the authentically what we would call authentic leadership. So there are loads of leadership models or approaches or ways of describing leadership, you know, and sometimes people say, oh, they're just labels, but actually they're really useful. If you think, well, what is compassionate leadership? Or we, um, my colleague and I, Michelle McLean, we we were doing work on sustainable healthcare education. So we looked, we coined eco-ethical leadership. And that was that leadership that's very collaborative, that's about the climate emergency. It's about looking after our planet. You know, it's doing... And I try to, it's about social justice, things like that. So I try, for me, that's really, that was my own way of framing my own leadership, I think, you know, that try and do that, try and lead by example. I don't know why I've got my lights on, actually. I should go turn them off right now. Um, But you know what I mean? (laughs) It's that, isn't it? It's just trying to live by the rules that you set yourself almost um, as a leader and just try to get it right. You know, that's the thing, isn't it? And listen you say yeah just being a good person perhaps <laughs> it's getting very deep all this isn't it very deep you see leadership is deep it's not just about doing stuff is it it's about being a really good per- you know the best person you can and everything if you can you've mentioned... bring us down to earth now <laughs> <laughs> no i was gonna you've mentioned lots of sort of i think we've touched on lots of the sort of educational theories that underpin the sort of development of leadership of role modeling and experimental learning all those kind of things I was wondering as your experience you obviously have a plethora of experience of uh, as a leader uh, setting up new organizations new curriculums those kind of things and who was it that were your leadership role models that you now think about and you have tried to emulate or who inspired you with the way you approach leadership 
Oh, quite a few people, obviously, with my long life. Um, quite a few people. I think when I was at Charing Cross Stroke Imperial, we it was a big, it's a huge project. I didn't really realise what I was going into when I first went into. I thought it was much more of a curriculum design project. I was very interested in curriculum development at that point, still am. But it actually turned into a much bigger project because we were there was a whole merger going on. And I used to, um, I had two mentor stroke bosses. One of them um, was in National Heart and Lung Institute and the other was my, my the principal of Imperial. Um, and I used to really, they were really different, but I used to value things about them. So they were both quite direct. One of them was much more mentoring than the other. The other was um, a bit like the father you need to please. <laughs> it was, he was more, he had a lot of gravitas and I was a bit like, Ooh, you know, but you felt, but he was really, they were both really approachable. What I learned is to, is when to, I think I really learned through that job, when to approach people and when not to. That's quite important, I think, because you don't want to be a thorn in somebody's side or go to them for everything. And that it's that balance between being given enough autonomy and trusted to get on with the job. So the leaders that I've admired, and I do try to be the same myself, is if I to trust people to do things, to get to know them enough to know when I can trust them and what I can trust them for, and what I can't. And so I'm a I've I'm a person who will tell you what I can do and I can do well and what I can't. Yeah, because I know my scope of competence and I know my interests and I also know where other people will do it much, much better than me. Okay, so I think that's something you need to learn clinically, I think, because you want to go into specialty subject or whatever, you know, you'd be, you're doing that. Um, you know, you might become a GP with a special interest. Well, then we all do that. You said about not going into emergencies. I'm thinking, well, you could have a special interest in, you know, pre-hospital care and there you would be on the roadside um you know but it's learning about ourselves isn't it so that we can do that but it's also learning your leader so i've had role models who i haven't respected and i haven't admired and it's much harder to work for somebody like that because they perhaps behave a bit inauthentically or they do things in a way that you don't feel is appropriate or they don't listen to you or they, you know, dismissive of you. So things like that are really difficult, aren't they? Um, and I think as a woman in leadership, not so much now at all, but when I first came into medical education, you know, I was pretty, the, the vast majority of people at my level were men, you know, and I was always a bit of a, and a non-doctor, you know, so the two things were, were, I had to really find my voice and I really think, well, what am I, what is, where is my credibility? For me, for me at that stage, it was knowing education inside out because I'd learned that. I'd learned my trade. I, I was a classroom teacher 25 hours a week in FE. I knew how to teach. I knew how to design curricula. I knew all the educational jargon and what it meant and learning. You know, I knew that. I'd done it. So I felt very confident going into a medical school and actually saying, no, these are they're not learning outcomes. These are no, you don't do norm reference. We don't do norm reference assessment. Actually, we do criteria. <laughs> the things that we now don't even dream of doing were being done then, and so they called me the educationalist when I first went to Charing Cross, which was quite cute. I felt like a little hamster pet or something. Um, oh, it's a little educationalist come from Yorkshire. So um, it was a bit like that, but it was also it meant that I had a role and a voice. And I and I, that that was quite useful for me. I learned where I where I was strong, and you know how to have that voice, and at meetings to speak up because I actually knew what I was talking about. Yeah, so it's very much how you learn clinically. You know, as you progress, you much more know what you're talking about, don't you? When you're a medical student, you're really finding your way. Um, but as you progress, that happens, and so it's the same with leadership, really. Uh, credibility, having a credible credibility for something is really important. So as clinicians, as doctors, you will have a natural credibility just by being a doctor in, in some settings. You won't in others, but you will in some settings. And so you, 
you have to be aware of that because people might listen to you and really you might not know what you're talking about so you haven't to pretend um but actually it, it is about that credibility and so I think it's useful to, you know, it's good that we're talking in a medical education context or health professions education, because that's another strand of your credibility, isn't it? For you and for those of us who are in education, we have that medical education strand. For leadership, there's a, the, the, we've been talking about the practical leadership, about being the leader, doing leadership stuff in the workplace, particularly. But there is also a theoretical side to leadership, which I think people don't always realise, um, that is drawn from the management, um, psych sciences, social sciences, psychology, etc. So there is a body of work that is, a you know, that's huge. I didn't realise that when I first started teaching leadership, you know, I thought, because I'd done an MBA and I thought I knew about it, but I didn't. And then I realised I had to learn about it. And the theories, you know, somebody said to me, what about collaborative leadership? I thought I'd made that up, you know, I thought, oh, I've invented. And then I Googled it and it was like, seriously, you haven't invented anything. So that was a bit of a come down. I was quite excited at the time for inventing something. Um, but, you know, you realise that there's all this body of literature out there and it's quite very, it's very much like education. You know, there are learning, the there are theories that underpin each of the approaches. So for me, it's quite interesting. Theoretically, I quite like to find it interesting theoretically, academically, you know, um, but the practice of it is really what, you know, it's putting that theory into practice, isn't it? I guess they build in on that. You can't necessarily, I think, we would say, and certainly coming from a TASME perspective, you, the two need to go hand in hand. Yeah, I, you can't, you can't be, you can be a reasonable teacher and not necessarily knowing why you do what you do. But it, the minute you add that theoretical underpinning, suddenly it really does change. It just helps you tweak, lift, and and that understanding of why you do what you do, even if it is more because you, you feel like you do it naturally, mm. it just, it, it really does help, doesn't it? To know why you do what you do or why what you do works or why perhaps sometimes things that you thought worked maybe don't work as well as you thought they might. Yeah, or they work in one context and they just didn't work in another. Yeah, exactly, exactly. No, I think it's exactly the same. Kurt Lewin says there's there's nothing as practical as a good theory. And that's the thing for me. It has to be, he might not have said it, I think he did say it, but anyway, I'll say it and pretend it's mine. Um, but that's the thing, isn't it? So if we talk about something like uh, like transactional leadership, which is leader member exchange, you do something for me, I do something for you, it's quite reward-based. Actually, all these perspectives have a value because actually when you're working with people, sometimes you do have to give them a reward for doing something. Sometimes some leadership or management is transactional. It can't all be transformational. You know, we can't always be motivating people to their higher planes. It's like in education, we can't always be resting on humanistic psychology or the humanistic learning things. Or we can't always rest on that side. Sometimes we have to go back Sometimes back that was a, that was a mistake. Sometimes we have to do the behaviorist positivist side because it does have a value. You can tell where I lie on the research paradigms, can't you? Um, but sometimes we do have to crunch the numbers and, and all the rest of it, and we do have to try and find some truths or some things that are you know common. Um, but in leadership, like education, there aren't that many truths, really. You know, it isn't doesn't lie on that side. So I think if you're interested in education and its theoretical side and, and where it comes from, particularly with the psychological and sociological underpinnings, you would be interested in leadership because it's very, very twinned, you know, really twinned. And, and if you're interested, yeah, I'm obviously interested in psychology, but, you know, just thinking about how psychological theories affect education, you know, the process of learning, how we collaborative learning, experiential learning, whatever those might be, those theories underpin leadership as well, because a lot of it is about working in groups and a lot of education is about working in groups. And then you've got the really interesting stuff, which is much newer, all about the, the sort of neuroscience of learning. How do we process, you know, how does learning happen within our brain? And in leadership, we're looking a lot as well about what happens sort of neurologically in leadership situations and the neurobiology of leadership is really interesting so I think 
wherever people's interests lie. I think there's something in the leadership literature or approaches that is really interesting because there's just so much. You know, it isn't just a one thing at all. Um, and there's some really interesting stuff, like anthropological stuff around tribal neurobiology, what happens in a crisis. There's just some, like, fascinating work really interesting work and cross-cultural leadership fascinating you know I work a lot overseas I didn't really mention that but I did before Covid uh, and working cross-culturally with other people on leadership and what that means is so fascinating because it's really different in different cultures and subcultures so geographical or ethnic cultures but also subcultures you know nurse leadership is different from doctor leadership as you discovered <laughs> Traditional doctor leadership, let's call it that. Yeah. <laughs> very political. <laughs> very, very tactful. <laughs> yeah. Um I wonder we've we've spoken a lot about the 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 big picture of leadership and actually I think the current um landscape of sort of doctors in training and trainees is that we have to somehow demonstrate leadership and I think I think we've the conversation so far has said that that's actually really there isn't one thing that 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 ticks that box to say you you are now a leader and you are a good leader or, or however I think you alluded to some of the things that we can do to develop those skills as trainees as doctors in training how what what kind of activities do you think we should try and focus on or what would you be your recommendation so that we can both tick that box on our portfolio of developing our leadership skills, but actually how do we develop though that um that authentic leadership as we progress? You need a buddy to give you good feedback. You need a mate who will go, you know, when you did that, <laughs> or you know, you did that really well. That was so good. When you said that, I could see them all, you know, listening to you, or whatever it is. So find a buddy, found a mate. I've been lucky all the way through my career to have had good colleagues who will give me open constructive feedback and I've done the same for them because actually everything you know what they say every day's a learning day sort of thing um it is every, you, there's loads of learnable moments in leadership so that's really helpful if you can have, find a good mentor or or a mentor I think is probably the best way of finding somebody who oh, you know, if it's your supervisor or whatever, if they will give you feedback, if you can say, do you know, I'm really trying to develop, you know, my leadership or management skills, get those conversations out. People always want to have a hand with something. So with my team, say at Swansea or Imperial, you know, if I got something to do, like write a report, I would loop people in so that they were learning how to do it. And and then eventually I could delegate to them. There was a secret plot behind it. Um, but you, that's the whole thing about succession planning. We're just having a conversation this afternoon at work about developing people to line manage people so that they that were developing the skills of supervision and appraisal and performance management. You don't you have to learn them from somebody. So I was saying, OK, I'll, if I work with these people, I can help develop them to do it with their people. And then we'll give them feedback and we'll be there. And so it's always that, you know, that's why people like mentors or good role models or good colleagues are so invaluable because we can't always, it's really hard to develop self-insight on your leadership, isn't it? Because we either think it's awful or we think it's okay and we don't, we don't do much else about, yeah, that was all right, you know what I mean? But we don't do the, oh, when I said that. And that's sometimes the sort of feedback you want. So so I think that's an important thing. And then I think, as I think as I said before, it's, it's observing what activities people do. So looking at the next layers up from you and, and looking what they have to do. Talk to them about what they have to do on a day-to-day basis. What do you have to do? You know, again, things like rotors, all these things fall into that senior. Okay, it's managerial, but you have to do the managerial things. Um, you know, watching how people do lead a business ward round or a teaching ward round or a board round. Actually watching the skills that they use. This is where your educational skills will come in really well because you're used to chopping things in chunks, time managing, involving people, summarising. Yep. So you're wrapping your clinical skills with your educational facilitation skills and you're taking a lead in it. A teacher is, an, is a leader. 
isn't it? Educare is to lead out. So the root of education, it means to lead out. What we're doing is leading out, is developing and leading people out to be, you know, to learn. But what we're doing in leadership is, is making things function. Yeah. We might be enabling learning as we're doing it. And a, and a good teaching wardrobe would do all those things. But it would also involve the patient and empower the patient. And that would be one of your roles. So you've got that dual role of making sure the patients are okay and hearing the patients, and but do it and making sure that everybody's heard and the MDT team's coming in and you're getting the right thing and you've all got a plan for discharge or whatever the plan is. So in general practice, a little bit different because your consultations are primarily on your on your own with the patients. It's not the same, you know, you, you don't have to think about that team, but you'll have your case conferences and your valid groups and whatever and conversations with your with your other GPs and trainees um, so that you're actually having those conversations. It's a bit harder to do that group leadership, I think, probably in primary care. But in hospital, you're doing it all the time, non-stop, actually, different groups, different teams, different people. So the skills you have to learn are probably different in those two settings. I would have thought, you know, that learning how to read situations quickly in hospital is probably about a group, about, okay, why aren't they speaking? You know what I mean? It's all that, right, okay, what's going on? Do I lead here? Do I follow? What's my role as a follower? It's always quite interesting, isn't it? And as you as you go through the hierarchy, you'll you'll start to be a more senior follower or a more active follower or a more exemplary follower, whatever we call the follower type that is near to the leader, you know, or the little L leader. And and that that's I think it's it's really good to think of it like that, actually. Because being a good follower is such a good thing. I like it. I, I love to be a good follower. I love it as much as being a, I don't know, if, being a leader, really. I just like it. I think, oh, yeah, I fit there. I can do that. I know where I fit. I know what I can do. You know, I upwards delegate. Don't tell people that I work with, but I upwards delegate, right? So I'll go, oh, well, if I do this, what about if, if I do, shall I take this, this on then? And then there's obviously a gap. So they have to go, oh, yeah, okay, and I'll do this very good technique so you know (laughs) don't tell any of your superiors let them not listen to this um but you know there are ways of working with people different people out there uh, you know so that everybody you do the best job really that's the whole thing so i would say that activities observe what happens and what you need to learn or you know chat to the regs what is it that so that you're knowing what you you'd be expected to do and take leadership of use the l word Use the F word, but not that one. You know, <laughs> it's so important. Use the M word because we management isn't a dirty thing. We, you know, we manage all the time. You know, you have to. I think building on that to some extent is then sort of. I guess we've just talked about the the leadership for everyone kind of thing. Then there's something I wanted to touch on and and as you'll see, this comes from sort of partly a personal place, I guess, having done one. But there are a lot of, or a number at least, of leadership fellowships that have cropped up over the past decade or so um, for postgraduate doctors in training, junior doctors, um, and for other healthcare professionals as well in, in predominantly the earlier part of the career. What what do you think about those? What's the role for those? Well, they are different, as you know. Um so there are a variety of leadership fellows, fellowship types around. There are sort of local, regional and national ones in the four nations. Um, the national, if you start with the national ones, they tend to be a year out of training, um, working with a host organisation or two, doing projects and learning to, to lead projects and engage, um, sometimes with some uh, teaching education that goes along with it sometimes not Um, increasingly more so i think as people are realizing there is actually literature um, and it's useful um so the national schemes i think uh, i think are very good i think they can be difficult um certainly the research and the evaluation that we've done of the of the national leadership programs in wales and england the vast majority of people have find a really positive experience, but you have to have a really good supervisor in your host organisation because and really 
clearly defined projects that 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 stretch you but you have to be supported as well it's a very fine balance between uh, between a fellow feeling supported but not micromanaged but yet stretched and of course that changes from the beginning of the year to the end you much you much more found your feet at the end a lot of the organizations are in turbulence at the moment particularly with the national organized the he etc huge turbulence going on that's been really hard for fellows where fellows haven't had a good supervisor the fellowship has been miserable or not good because it so rests on the supervisor and the host organization and i would say if you're going into a fellowship make sure that any fellowship make sure that that structure is in place and there's a structure for um being able to talk to somebody about your concerns so i think that is important um, then the, the local or the regional fellowships are a little bit different. Some of them are for certain health professional groups. So there's the pharmacy, the, the pharmacy ones, uh, there's optometrists, there are nurses, there's midwives, there's the medics, there's the dentists, and there's healthcare scientists, and there are sustainable healthcare people. <laughs> um, the sustainability fellows, because I've been working with those the most um, nationally in England. Um, and I think that's about finding a niche. What I would suggest also is work with your other fellows, form a group, work collaboratively. And if you can do collaborative projects because they're a more impactful and also you have more fun, which is always important to me and you feel more supported. So, you know, those are the things. And then there are quality improvement fellows and uh, sort of the, those side of things where you'll be working probably in an organization doing a quality improvement project. So they're more, they're more the local or the regional ones. So the QI, there's a lot of QI fellows around. And again, they're different health professions. They're not all doctors. Um, and they usually have had an identified project and then been recruited to lead the project as a fellow. So they can be coming out of training or for other health professions, uh, they're not coming out of training because they don't do postgrad training. They're actually stepping out of their career for a year or less. Um, so they're the sort of fellow, main, the main fellowships that are there. I think they become really valuable. I mean, people grow personally immensely through the year, but they they're not. And also, I think the transition back to practice can be really tricky. You know, you've been an you've been a bit of an elite, especially the national fellows in the FLM, You know, the medical directors fellowship. They were meeting everybody, the great and the good here, there, and everywhere, and then they were back on nights, you know, as an anaesthetist or something, and <laughs> back in training and, you know, doing the scut work. And also I think there has been a bit of, res of lack of knowledge or ignorance or sometimes resentment about the fact that the fellows have had a year out of training. It's almost like, you know, take your boots off, get back. Yeah. And, and people have found it quite hard to take the learning forward in the workplace you know, which has been a bit sad. That's one of the things I felt has been quite sad. So we've been doing quite a lot of work with the Faculty of Medical Leadership and Management in supporting people back into the workplace and whilst they're in the workplace. So some workplaces are really good. They've got they've had fellows for quite a long time and they've got a group of fellows and they give them projects when they come back. Other fellows have been very canny in negotiating less than full-time training and kept other roles. Sometimes, so a more of a portfolio career, and that works for some people. Uh, you can't do that if you've been out in uh, out of your career necessarily. But some of the dots of training have done that. And then we've had to really work hard to say just the fact that people have gone on fellowships doesn't mean they're lost to medicine, because they're not. In ninety-seven percent of people stay in medicine. They might not all stay in the NHS, but they stay in medicine. Um, vast majority stay in the NHS and continue their training or or work as a doctor. I think the other thing the fellowship does, like any time out, it gives you time for reflection. And we've seen a lot of career changes, not coming out of medicine, but changes of specialty, rethinking their life, because that time out and doing something completely different when you've been on the treadmill just gives you pause for thought. And that's not a bad thing. Because it, the, you know, you're in. If you if you if you're going to stay in your profession for the rest of your life, you want to be happy. 
and you want to feel you've made the right choice. So we do see quite a lot of specialty switching. Um, the, I know my group, the last group I've had, I think three have, cha have, have, have changed in specialty. So it's not negative at all. Because, you know, it isn't that everybody comes out of surgery and goes to be a GP or something. It isn't that. But people do change. They, their priorities, they reset their priorities, I think. And for women, I think even more so. Because they start to think about factor, you know, the fact because let's face it, the burden of childcare does fall on women, really, and they start to really think about, okay, how am I going to work this through? Because quite often you've been on that treadmill, thought you'll have your children, you know, get get to this point, have your kids. Well, actually, what life do you want then? Um, and seeing that different sort of more office-based work, as we might call it, really shows people that there is life outside you know, for hospital walls, let's face it. So so I think if people are thinking of going into a fellowship, be aware that it's a life changer. It can really be a life changer, but but it's not a bad thing at all, you know, um, and, and ask for support. I, I think make sure you've got buddies. As, I'm almost for buddies, aren't I? Buddies, that, you know, the other fellows, people, you know, you know that. They support, you support each other really well. It's so good yeah no i think that's i think that's a really good point and it, it's from my experience reflecting on on my year i mean i mean i was telling oliver earlier that actually i i've met some of my fellow fellows last night for dinner like that like it, it's not just it's not a buddy for the, just that 12 month window for me that's that they are going to be my buddies for life in lots of ways and and have that the ability to meet those people and bounce things off and, and where we're all at and we've all gone back into very different roles and we came from very different places we worked in different organizations we've gone back into different roles most of us something slightly different to where we were before we did the fellowship sort of reflecting what you've just said but I I do think having that group of people that you can bounce off and, and reflect off and and give each other feedback has got to be an important thing Oh, huge. I think that's the networking is always one of the biggest things that comes out of the evaluation. The networking outside. So the other thing it does, it opens your eyes to the system. Because we, you know, as medical students, I mean, we try and teach about the system and complexity and blah, blah, blah. But actually, if you're working, I don't know, for BMJ or the GMC or NHSE or whatever it is, you start to see the system and I think that what it does to you is realise that you are actually a small part of a very big system. And that can be quite salutary, you know, but it's quite empowering also because you suddenly realise things. It's not all about you. <laughs> it's actually, you know, you're part of a much bigger picture. And that's quite I think that's quite nice in a way. That's why I quite like the concept of followership, because I think that's quite empowering that you don't have to do things all yourself. Um, and doctor training is a bit individualist as well, unfortunately, because it's competitive right from the get go. And so, you know, all we're, we're in our deciles and we're fighting for training posts and then we're doing this and blah, blah, blah. And have you got CCT? It's that treadmill of competition that is not always healthy, is it? You know, so that where you can work collaboratively, like you've just said, with other people of like minded is so nice. So it's finding your tribe. We call it finding your tribe. So I think wherever you are, you need to find your tribe. My tribe is in medical education and new medical schools, I think. I'm GM I've been on GMC. Um, so I've been a GMC associate for a long time on new, new schools. Uh, you know, I, I love new. I love the new school concept. I'm not, I'm not saying get bored by running a medical school, but actually... I like the developments, you know, that's very me, whereas other people like to like to run things and make, you know, in that way. But I like to set things up. So I've just been lucky to find the niche and been able to do it, really. Um, not lucky, partly lucky, but also knowing things that I like doing and, and, and also seizing opportunities. I think leaders often do that. They'll actually work, they'll have to take a bit of a risk. You know, you might think, oh, a bit of a risk to go be, you know, a nurse who worked in further education, running health programmes to being the curriculum curriculum facilitator for a new medical programme at Charing Cross. Well, 
I knew I could do the education bit. I just had, and I knew the medicine bit, the jargon. I just didn't know the bit that fell in the middle. And I thought, well, I can surely learn it. <laughs> surely learn it, you know, and we can. So That's amazing. Thank you so much. I think to wrap up, we like to sort of end on a sort of a magic wand kind of question about if you if there was one thing that you could change about the way we develop leadership skills in healthcare professionals what would it be i don't like the magic wand i thought you were going to give us some flowers or something which would have been <laughs> nice but it's a wand um i think appreciating i think i think i would love it if if the people who supervised you and looked after you appreciated that leadership isn't all about being se- about seniority that leadership is a set of activities that we do, including the followership and the management, that people understood that and then people would nurture people to develop those capabilities and understanding in you. That would be my best wand that I could wave, that people actually understood that fundamental thing about leadership and not think about leadership as Obama or Trump or Putin or whoever or whoever. It's not that. Leadership is about every day making a difference and inspiring and motivating people to improvement direction and actually making things better. That's what leadership is. It's pulling those threads together, isn't it? Orchestrating the threads. And you can be a small part of that, whatever level you're at. Um, So that, for me, I think that probably would be my magic wand moment, that people actually just understood that and lived it. And use the L word and the F word and the M word because they're not dirty words. They're just words, you know. Let's talk about leadership as as, as being an everyday thing, not as being a special thing. I, I think that's brilliant. And what a lovely note to end on, bringing those three things back from the beginning. Thank you so much um, for joining us today. Um, it's been really insightful and um, I'm sure our listeners will have found it so too. I hope so. Thank you very much for inviting me. It's been good. Thank you. That was a really great discussion. I think I have um, picked up a few bits about uh, developing my leadership skills. And I think the um, aspect that Professor McKim mentioned about that transition back from a fellowship into clinical practice. I think it'd been very much my experience this year after finishing my education fellowship and sort of having this responsibility and projects and that kind of thing. And then suddenly back to medical ward cover and being micromanaged by rotor coordinators has been a a, a shift. And I think it's a, a what was mentioned about how we um support people who have done these fellowships develop these skills and are back in the sort of this the normal workforce how do we continue to use those skills and develop the skills we've gained no i i agree and i i also was reflecting sort of on my transition back um from my leadership fellowship but also i think what really shook a chord with me is that idea of having buddies and needing that feedback, but having that informal network around you of people that you can bounce ideas off, or you can ask for feedback, um, has been really helpful. One of the one of the fellows I worked with last year, I'm still working with on a project now, and um, I chair a meeting, and she was in the group, and she the first, after the first meeting just get sent me some feedback on my chairing that was really positive, and actually I didn't have that in the whole of my year. Um, necessarily as a fellow so it was really nice from someone else to get that feedback and to have that from someone who you know and trust and value their opinion um so I thought that was a really helpful thing that I need to take forward more actually Mm. and I think some of the things that were mentioned about um mentorship and sort of building that network are things that um, well a little plug here but things that Tasmi and Asmi can definitely help with ASME's um, mentorship scheme which is available to all members and um, sort of the network within TASME and the events that are held a great opportunity to build that those networks for um, educational stuff and educational leadership. No I think that's a really good point Oliver 
Um, I just wanted to say thank you again to our guest, Professor Judy McKim. She shared um, really insightful reflections from her career and, and such in-depth knowledge on, on the subject of medical leadership and how we develop that. Um, if you have enjoyed today's episode, please don't forget to rate, review and subscribe to the podcast. And you can find out more about TASME, ASME and our many other groups at asme.org.uk. And make sure you follow us on Twitter at TASME underscore UK. Finally, as always, thanks to the podcast team, the wider TASME committee and Amlunya for our theme music. Thank you again for listening to TASME Time and we look forward to seeing you again soon. Thank you.